Well, good morning, Sailorville. How are we doing this morning? morning. Everybody good? All right, let's go. We are in Mark chapter 6 this morning. So glad that you're here. Some of you are watching online. Welcome to you as well. And I just want to say a very special welcome to maybe those of you that are here for the first time or haven't been here in a little bit. We love you, and we're glad that you're here. See if you've ever been here with me uh, as I just kind of tell this story. A few weeks ago, Meredith and I were cleaning out some uh, storage stuff, and uh, we found some boxes that we hadn't really opened up since college. <laughs> now, that's quite a while ago, <laughs> but we opened up these boxes, and they were full, and I mean like chock full of notes and pictures and poems and letters and little trinkets that Meredith had given to me while we were dating. I had a box of stuff that I gave her also, but it was more like a shoebox. <laughs> Only half full. But picture this. What if, when we opened up those boxes, what if most of those notes and those cards and those letters were still sealed? Never opened. Could I, could I have looked at Meredith in that moment and said, sweetheart, I love you. But I didn't actually read the words that you wrote to me. I didn't actually open up the cards that you sent to me. I didn't even want to get to know you through the letters that you poured over. I mean, I did read a few of them. I got the general idea. I mean, I picked up on the gist of how you felt about me. I got the highlights, but the other stuff, it just didn't seem all that important. I kind of always wanted to read them, but I was just so busy. It was college. I mean, yikes, crazy time, super busy. I mean, you get it, right, babe? I, I do love you, though. <laughs> Maybe some of you have been there. Well, here's something that we know. If we want to be more like Jesus, and we say as a church that we do, in fact, want to make more people more like Jesus, if we want to be more like Jesus, then we have to get to know him in the Bible. In fact, if you're a true Christian here today, and by that I mean if you are someone who has personally admitted your sin and put your faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus like we just sang, given your life to Christ as your leader and your Lord, if you are a Christian and you aren't consistently reading his word, then how in the world are you going to become more like Jesus? How are you going to intentionally imitate somebody that you don't know, or fall in love with someone if you're not opening up that person's letters and reading them, reading the Bible and seeing what Jesus says about himself. So Christian, I wonder how many of us would say this morning, I'm going to commit brand new right here, right now to getting to know Jesus better, falling deeper in love with him, learning how to be more like him by opening up the Bible and reading his letters to me. Would you do that this week? Would you commit to that this week? Just commit to reading the Bible and asking God to show you more how to be like Jesus as you read. Now, maybe you're here and you're a skeptic and you're saying, I don't really know about all this Jesus stuff, and the church thing is still kind of weird to me too. I'm, I'm just asking you, I'm just asking you, don't write Jesus off. Get to know him through his word. Ask questions. Read it together with somebody else. I'm asking you this morning, don't write him off. In fact, start reading, maybe even in the story that we're going to this morning. It may be a great one to start off with. We're in Mark chapter 6, and we've been following the life of Christ over the last several months here on Sunday mornings, of course, throughout the week as well. 
And so we're in Mark 6, but you can actually find this exact same story in all four of the Gospels. In other words, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all include this little story in their accounts of Jesus' life. In fact, the miracle that we're about to read about is the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus himself that shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that should be a clue to us as to how important they thought and the Holy Spirit thought this story was for us. And I think we'll discover why in the next couple minutes. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 6 in your Bibles, on your iPads, your phones, whatever version you're using. Follow along with me, Mark chapter 6, verse 30. This is the word of God. The apostles, or the disciples, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and that's many people, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay, let's pause here for just a second. So the passage opens up with the apostles or the disciples gathering together with Jesus and reporting to him all that they had done and taught on their little missions trip around that area called Galilee. Now remember, Jesus had sent them out in pairs or two by two to tell people about him, to urge people to repent of their sins and to teach people about the coming eternal kingdom. And to show that their message was true and authentic, Jesus had given these disciples the power to heal sick people to cast out demons, and even to raise people from the dead. They didn't take anything with them, right? No clothes, no backpack, no suitcases, no money, nothing. Just get out there and tell people about Jesus. And so they did. And the whole thing lasted probably just a few months. But while the disciples are wrapping up their missions trips and coming back, they hear the news that one of their heroes, John the Baptist, that's Jesus' cousin and someone that had really prepared the way for Jesus, that John the Baptist had been killed by Herod. And so the gospel writer Mark tells us in verse 29 right up above here that the disciples actually go and get John's body and then they bury him in a tomb. This is the scene that we're jumping into. The disciples show up to where Jesus is, probably Capernaum, a sort of a headquarters or home base, and, and they just want to shower and new underwear, and a comfy couch to sit on, and maybe a meal. And then there's more people, and there's more people, and there's more people. In fact, Mark tells us that there are so many people coming and going, the disciples didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus, who, remember, had just lost his friend and his cousin, John, steps in and he says, hey guys, come, come with me. Let's go to a quiet place and just rest for a while. He looks at the disciples, and he knows their needs. He tenderly provides for them. Jesus understood what it was like to need rest, remember? After, after a tiring day of ministering to people, he himself had fallen asleep in the boat while the disciples were flipping out about the storm. You remember that story? Sometimes we forget that Jesus, as God-man, needed sleep. He knew what it was like to be tired, he knew what it was like to be hungry. He understood sadness and pain and hurt. Jesus grieved. Jesus loved. And here, Jesus knew exactly what the disciples needed, and he provided it. Look carefully how Luke describes this moment in verse 10 of Luke chapter 9. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. And watch this phrase. And Jesus took them 
and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. You see that? Jesus took the disciples with him. He took them with him. Jesus led them to a place of rest with him. And I think there's something important here for us to remember this morning. Rest is more than just taking a nap or taking a day off, although I love naps. Rest, true life-giving, replenishing, life-filling Sabbath only happens when we are with Jesus. Yeah, like mom used to say, we are at our best when we've had our rest. But the best rest happens when we rest with the Lord. That's the best rest. That's why Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And oh my goodness, that's us, right? Jesus says, I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest, not just for your bodies, Jesus says, but in me you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so friends, just let me say this this morning as we get started. It's okay to break away before you break down. It's okay to break away before you break down. Take a walk and listen to scripture. Sit down by the lake and read a psalm. If you really want to freak your kids out, go into the bathroom, lock the door, and sing some worship songs out loud. Just break away before you break down. And my goodness, friends, say no once in a while. You don't need to be so busy, even busy doing good things. If you find yourself saying yes to busyness because it makes you feel important, stop. Your identity is in Christ. Read Ephesians again, right? Not in what you do for Christ. For some of you, that's all you need to hear this morning. You're saying, I'll say no to the rest of the sermon. I'll get up and walk out right now. Your identity is in Christ, not in what you do for Christ. Just take a breath and say no. Okay, practice it with me, just so I can prove that you can do this, right? One, two, three. No. Say it again and really feel it, right? One, two, three. No. Now, don't say no when the church says we need more nursery workers, okay? But (laughs) there's a time to say no. Jesus says, hey, guys, come come with me. We're going to rest together for a bit. And they get into the boat, maybe one of the fishermen disciples' boats, and they head out from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee over towards the east. It's about eight miles from Capernaum where they are to where they eventually come on shore near the little fishing village of Bethsaida. But their time of rest, that time of refreshment and rejuvenation is cut short according to the next couple of verses. Look at verse 33 with me. Now many, that's many people, saw them going. They saw the disciples and Jesus getting into the boat. They recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. So picture this. There's people coming from all over the place. They see Jesus and his disciples getting into the boat, and they're like, I don't care where he's going. We're going to follow him. And they run the eight miles along with the boat on shore to where Jesus gets out. And Mark tells us when he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd. And here again, With the people, they just keep coming. They ran to meet Jesus. Mark uses a really specific word, ran. It's a word that means to chase after something with other people. And so picture a mob of people, frenzied and frantic, rushing after Jesus like Black Friday shoppers rushing through Target and Ankeny. That's the picture I want you to have in your mind as these people are chasing him. And while you say, don't we want more people to follow Jesus? Isn't that a good thing, right? 
More people following Jesus? Yeah. Well, that actually depends on the motivation, doesn't it? And this is where we find the first of four types of faith this morning. We're just kind of calling these four types of faith. And here's the first one, the faith of the crowd. The faith of the crowd. It's a convenient faith. Look at what John says about why they were so hard after Jesus. In John 6, John says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's why they were chasing after him. See that? They were chasing Jesus, not because they wanted him, but because they wanted what he could do for them. These same people ran to see his works, but they refused to obey his words. They were big on their physical wants, but blind to their spiritual needs. And listen, their following after Jesus was based on what Jesus could do for them. It was convenient. It was a faith of convenience. In fact, a few chapters from now, most of these same people desert Jesus because it wasn't convenient to be associated with him anymore. Now, let's just make this simple application here together this morning. You might be here today or listening to this online because you want Jesus to solve some kind of a temporary problem in your life. Maybe your marriage is a wreck. So you're frantically chasing after Jesus, or you're addicted to something, and, and so you want Jesus to take away that desire, or you're sick, or your bank account just seems to be on empty all the time, or your kids are off the rails, or you don't like your job, and, and so you're trying Jesus because you want him to make your life more comfortable or convenient. And so here's our question this morning. Are you chasing Jesus because of something he can do for you? Because if that's you this morning, if that's true, then chances are when he does that thing, you'll probably ditch him. Once the addiction is gone, you won't need Jesus anymore. Once the marriage is healed, you'll be done with Jesus. When he's fixed your problem or provided a solution temporarily for you, you will move on. If you're looking for the gift and not the giver, you will simply ditch Jesus when he accomplishes what you're after him for. The story goes on. It tells us that the crowds, this frenzied and frantic crowd, met Jesus on the beach. And he pulls the boat to shore, and there they are. They're clamoring, and, and they're clawing at him before he even gets off the boat. You picture this. Must have looked like Eastside Night at the State Fair when Chris Stapleton shows up, right? I mean, this is pandemonium. They're going crazy for Jesus. <laughs> that joke doesn't work on the east side. Watch how Jesus responds. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And read this word with me. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, my goodness. This is how Jesus responds. Here's how he reacts when, when his time of rest is interrupted by the crushing crowds of people who, listen, for the most part, weren't following him because they loved him, but because they loved what he could do for them. He had compassion on them. Compassion some of you know this part of the Bible was written in the Greek language, and so there's a really specific Greek word used here for this idea of compassion, and it's this word. We'll put it on the screen behind us. Splanknizomai. Oh, that's some good language right there, isn't it? Splanknizomai. You can hear that. Spleen. Read it with me. One, two, three. Splanknizomai. From the gut now, all right? Ready? Splanknizomai. Oh, you did it. That's compassion. 
It's really referring to being, listen to this, moved in the bowels, in the gut, right? It's that ancient feeling that there were real emotions and they came from the gut. By the way, there's a massive difference between speaking in youth group and preaching here in the main service. The reaction when you say movement in the bowels is much different up here <laughs> than it is when we speak with middle schoolers. It's a pretty good indication of your maturity. But it was, listen, this deep-seated gut-level empathy that led to the action on the part of the compassionate person. And here's a great definition I learned from my dad. It's simple, but it's so good. Compassion is love in action. Write that down. If you want to know if you've got compassion, here it is. Love in action. And we see that, really, from Jesus over and over. In fact, most of the time, this word, splonknizomai, is used in the New Testament. It's referring to Jesus and the way he acted towards people. But watch this. It was the way Jesus saw people that moved him to compassion. And here in our story, he looks at the thousands of frenzied and frantic sick and hungry and spiritually wayward as they're dotted like sheep across the grassy hillside there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them for who they truly are, individually leaderless and helpless and lost. And like sheep without a shepherd to care for their true needs, Jesus has compassion, love in action, on them. One of my spiritual heroes was a man named Frank Vega who passed away several years ago. Christy may remember Frank from inner city Philly. He was one of those pastors in inner city Philadelphia. It's that place that's effectually known as the Badlands, right? We used to spend a few weeks during the summer with Pastor Frank and one of the first things we noticed about him was this gut level, roll his sleeves up, more than just lip service kind of compassion for the people of Philly. It's that same kind of love in action that we see from Jesus in the New Testament. And when I asked him one day, Pastor Frank, how do you learn that level of compassion? He said something I'll never forget. This is how he responded. Only when we see people the way Jesus sees them will we treat people the way Jesus treats them. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? And so, friend, maybe, like me, you struggle to move into the mess of the lives of people sometimes. Maybe you want to be more compassionate. Maybe you want to love with more than just lip service. So here's the question. How do you see people? How's your vision? How do you see them? When you get on the school bus, how do you see people? When you go to the gym, how do you see people? When you're at the grocery store or driving into your neighborhood, passing house after house, or walking through your apartment complex hallway, door after door, or you're sitting across from your community group, or at your dining room table with your friends or family, or you're on the couch watching TV with your roommate, or even here this morning, how do you see people around you? In spite of all the unbelief that Jesus had already encountered from these people, and in spite of his desire to withdraw from this great public activity and to be alone with his disciples just to rest for a while, his heart was moved for these people who just wouldn't leave him alone. And listen to this. Christ's compassion on us does not depend on our faith in him. 
Christ's level of compassion that he has on us does not depend on the level of faith that we have in him. The eyes of Jesus saw more than a mass of people whose faith was based on convenience. He saw their spiritual needs. They were sheep without a shepherd, wandering around looking for anything that would satisfy them temporarily. Does that sound like you? Does that describe someone that you see every day or that you rub shoulders with at work or at school? Does that describe the way you see that person? And when you see people like Jesus sees them, you'll treat them like Jesus treats them. And this is how he treated the crowd. Luke 9 says this, the crowds followed him. And watch this, welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Jesus threw open his arms to the crowd and he welcomed them. He taught them and he healed them and he gave them truth and love. Truth and love. Isn't that really the gist of the gospel? The truth that you and I are sheep without a shepherd. We're sinners. We're wandering around without a purpose and without a leader, frenzied and frantically looking for the next thing that will satisfy us temporarily, satisfy our cravings, or or just take away our pain for a little while. And God sees us and he says, I want you. I love you. Come to me. I welcome you. And about a year after this story takes place, Jesus would once again throw open his arms, but this time on a cross, and he would say, welcome all of you who are weary and tired and burdened down with sin and with shame and anxiety, with hurt and hunger, and Jesus says, I will give you rest. Trust in me. Give it all to me. Come to me. I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for you, my precious lamb. Truth and love. That's the gospel. Meredith and I visited one of our community groups this last Wednesday night, and we were talking about this. You can't have the gospel without both truth and love. you got to have both, or it's not the gospel. Then here come the disciples again. And we give these guys kind of a bad rap sometimes, right? But the truth is, we sort of see ourselves in them. We feel a little bit for them, don't we? Here they are trying to go on vacation, so to speak, with Jesus. And and there's Jesus, of course, being Jesus. He's just loving on people and healing people and teaching them about the kingdom. And it's not exactly a vacation for the disciples. And so there's thousands of people, 5,000 men and maybe up to 10 or 20,000 people all together with women and children sort of gathered there, and it's getting late, and, and the disciples are kind of annoyed and tired, and, and they're getting like a little bit hangry, right? And so we read, and when it grew late, the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away. That's the solution the disciples have. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So it's late, Right? They've been at this all day now. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, excuse me, um, Jesus, while you've been teaching and healing and having like all this compassion on these people, I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody here skipped breakfast and lunch just blew by without a bite to eat and it's getting kind of late, it's almost dinner time and I know you went like 40 days in the wilderness without eating, but maybe the time for that lesson is not right now. 
There's no Chick-fil-A's around and Burger King's under construction and there's no Olive Garden. Actually, there was a Garden of Olives, but that's a... It's a different story. So Jesus, I mean, this has been like a real blast sharing you with thousands of people while we're supposed to be on vacation. That's really been awesome. But Lord, enough is enough, right? I mean, lesson over. It's time for them to leave. Jesus, send them away. Jesus sees the people as sheep without a shepherd. He treats them with compassion. The disciples see the people as an annoying problem to solve. And they try to send them away. And so again, our question is, how do you see people? Jesus looks back at his disciples. John's version of the story says that he speaks directly to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, right there in that same area. And Jesus asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he, Jesus, said this to test Philip, for for Jesus knew himself what he was going to do. And Philip looks back at Jesus and said, "Uh, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't even be enough for each of them to get a little. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. I love it because the disciples have just gotten through explaining why they can't feed this massive crowd. Wait, Jesus, did you just hear what we said? Thousands of people, no dinner, DoorDash won't be around for 2,000 years. You want us to feed this crowd? You've got to be kidding. We don't have any money, and there's no food anywhere around. But listen, Jesus won't let his men off the hook. Why? Because he wants them to get involved in the grand adventure of helping others by faith. And here's where we see the second type of faith in the story, the faith of Philip. And I'm calling it a calculated faith because I think that's exactly the kind of faith some of us have here this morning. It's a calculated faith. Watch this. Jesus turns right to Philip. He's obviously on the finance committee, right? He's been using his pocket calculator to try to figure out how much it would cost to give a snack to all these thousands of people. And he guessed it's going to be almost a full year's wage, about 200 denarii, just to give everybody a little bite of bread. And honestly, Philip was right. Logically, humanly, from a financial calculation standpoint, he nailed it. It doesn't make any sense, and he was right. But isn't this how Jesus works with us too sometimes? Over and over again, he puts us in positions that seem helpless. And then he says, do something. And in our desperation, we cry out to heaven and we say, how? Jesus replies, I'm glad you finally asked. It's not that Jesus wants us to fail, but he does want us to know that without him we can do nothing. And that's how he grows our faith, when he provides the evidence of things that we can't yet see or calculate. See, the disciples' problem wasn't that they had miscalculated the need. It was that they had misplaced their faith. They thought that they were supposed to come up with a solution instead of trusting Jesus for the solution. Think about this now. Put yourself into that situation. The disciples are standing around who? Jesus. And yet they never even asked him. MacArthur says this, the possibility that Jesus might create the necessary food never even crossed their minds. They were so focused on the problem and the need to find a human solution that they failed to consider the divine power of their Lord. As Pastor Kurt would say, face, meat, palm. Duh! It's Jesus! 
Why didn't we think of this? Food for thousands? He's got that. No problem. This is Christ we're talking about. Maybe we should stop trying to calculate how to handle the problems in our lives and instead let Jesus blow our minds. And so Jesus turns to the disciples again in verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, we got five loaves and we got two fish. And John tells us that it's Andrew who found the young boy with the five loaves and the two fish and and brought this boy to Jesus. Now, five loaves. Don't picture a nicely sliced loaf of Wonder Bread all wrapped up for us here, right? These loaves are much more like flat biscuits, probably made of barley, a staple in that time for poor people, those who didn't have much money. The fish were probably dried or smoked fish right there from the Sea of Galilee. They're in a fishing village, something maybe like small sardines today. And so Andrew finds this boy, brings him to Jesus, and then Andrew makes this revealing statement. He says, but how far will they go among so many? If Philip's faith was calculated, I think Andrew's faith was cautious. Andrew's faith was a cautious faith. Andrew says, Jesus, I want to believe in you, but this seems impossible. Andrew offers what they have, but he admits it's not enough. And he's right, of course. Those five tiny loaves of bread and two small fish would barely be enough for the little boy that was holding them, let alone a crowd of thousands. And now we don't know much about Andrew from the New Testament. We do know that he was Peter's brother. In fact, we don't ever see Andrew giving great speeches, preaching to great crowds. We don't ever see him performing amazing miracles or showing up in the spotlight. He's just there, always close to Jesus. And here in this story, he shows up, not with a thundering voice, but with a cautious faith. Jesus, I, I know it's not much. But here's a little boy with a snack. I don't don't see how this is going to help anything, but if anyone can do something with this, Lord, it's you. So here you go. He cautiously introduces the young boy to Christ. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. You've seen Jesus do some amazing stuff in your life, but what you're facing today still seems impossible. Maybe you want to introduce people around you to Christ, but you're not sure how or or how they'll respond. You believe, but there's that nagging human shadow of unbelief. Like the father of the demon-possessed boy just a few pages later in Mark, it's as if Andrew says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you feel that sometimes? It's true for so many of us. How many of you would be willing to admit this morning that your faith is a cautious faith? Yeah. That's okay, because God takes that seed of faith and he grows it over time when you keep giving it to him. Because with God, little is big. With God, little is big. God loves to turn a little into a lot with faith. So, Jesus has everyone sit down in groups of 50 and 100 across that hillside. Thousands and thousands of people. By the way, as a guy that works with groups as a living here at this church... I think the real miracle in this story is that Jesus was able to get this hungry mob organized into groups of 50 and 100. That's just amazing to me, right? I mean, who's counting? How does this work? And this is where we see the faith of the little boy, the faith of the little boy. And I'm calling this a complete faith this morning. I think you'll see why. The little boy, by the way, not one of the 5,000 men, but it takes a boy. 
probably less than 10 years old, this boy brings what he has, little that it may be. He opens his hands and he gives it to Jesus. And I just have to ask this morning, what's in your hands today? What's in your hands today? You might say, oh, I don't, I don't really have much of anything. Really? What about the talents that God has given you? How are you offering those up for him to use? How about your time? Are you using your time to help more people be more like Jesus? Or your money, or your stuff, or your cars, or your homes, your relationships, your family, your education? What's in your hands? God has already given you what he wants to use from you. God can use it. Open up your hands and watch God do something amazing. Little is big when we offer it to God. Little is big when we offer it to God. And that's what happens in this story. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish from the boy who willingly gives up his lunch to Jesus, not knowing, by the way, what Jesus would do with it, but having complete faith, he offers up what he has to Jesus. And Jesus prays. Mark says he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. So there's absolutely no confusion about where the miracle that's about to happen is actually coming from. Jesus looks up to God in heaven and he thanks him. And more than 5,000 people and all 12 disciples and one faithful little boy watch as Jesus worships his father. What a scene. And then he begins to tear off little pieces of bread and little chunks of fish in his hands. The language there means that the miracle took place right there in his hands. It's just continuing and continuing. And he fills up one basket, sort of a wicker kind of thing about this size, and he gives it to one of the disciples. And I like to picture him handing that first basket to Philip. Remember Philip? Ah, uh, 200 denarii, I couldn't feed all these people. <laughs> Philip. The man with the calculated faith. And Philip, I'm just picturing this, friends. Philip, he's looking at this basket and it's full. And he looks back at Jesus and he looks at the basket again. He looks at Jesus and Jesus is like, <laughs> Jesus doing Jesus stuff, you know? And then Philip grabs that basket and he turns and begins passing it through the rows of people. Here's some bread. Here's some fish. Where'd this come from? Jesus. And then Andrew gets a basket, and he distributes. And then John and Peter and James and the rest of them, they're all handing out the blessing that Jesus had given them. How humbling. Ten minutes ago, these guys were telling Jesus to send these annoying people away, and now they're literally walking among them, serving them, blessing them as distributors of what God had created for them, and the blessing just keeps coming. Basket after basket was filled and then emptied and then filled again, and nobody went away hungry. John says that they ate until they had as much as they wanted. They leaned back and unbuckled their belts, and they're stretching they're fully satisfied, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. I can get behind these kind of leftovers, folks. And as the people are stopping, are slowing down their eating, and as, as they kind of stop the meal, the disciples then begin to gather again back up front where Jesus is. Now picture this. One by one, they come up to gather around Jesus, and the 12 disciples, every single one of them, they each bring a full basket they each bring a full basket back. It's not empty. It's overflowing. Jesus had 
provided, satisfied by the Savior. Lord, thank you for this story. We chase so many things instead of true satisfaction in you. Lord, help us to have faith. Even small faith can move mountains. Lord, I pray that you would grow our small faith. And Lord, here's the thing. There may be people in this room that don't have any kind of faith or they've misplaced their faith. Their faith is in their job. Their faith's in their reputation. Their faith's in their hobbies, their marriage, their families, their uh, family legacy, whatever, Lord. Those objects of our faith are passing away every single second. But placing our faith in you, Lord, that's something that is solid for all of eternity. I pray, Lord, that even today, that if there's someone in this room that has not placed his or her faith into you, the Savior who can satisfy eternally, that today would be the day that that individual opens up his or her hands and says, Lord, take, take it. Take me. I put my very self into you. I want to be found in Christ. I want to be found one of your sheep. Not just a sheep, but one of your sheep. And Lord, for the rest of us, let us use what you've given us completely and fully committed. Let us use it as we serve you. In your name, amen. Let's stand and sing.